Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Well, let's jump into this morning's message. Today is uh, part three of a series that we're calling uh, Telling the Story. We began on Easter Sunday. And this series is really built on the conviction uh, that the gospel is not primarily a set of facts that you either believe or not, but rather the gospel is a story that reveals truths about ourselves, about who God is, and about the world uh, that invites us then to orient our lives according to those truths. And so the gospel is not just a bullet list of things that you need to agree upon, but rather a story that draws us in, invites us to be a part of it, and to orient our lives according to those truths. In the first week on Easter Sunday, we looked at Acts chapter 10, where Peter shares the gospel in the house of a a Greek Roman army officer named Cornelius. And in that sermon, he summarizes the gospel. And he says to the folks listening there, he says, you have seen the ministry of Jesus. And on that, we took some time to just begin to ask the question, what was the life and the ministry of Jesus all about? We talk a lot about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but what was his life all about? And we learned that Jesus, in his life and in his ministry, was establishing the kingdom of God, which was a totally uh, new way, a brand new way of life, where Jesus is Lord and Caesar was not. And then Peter says and declares that Jesus died. And we talked about how Christ took on our sin. He absorbed our sin and the sin of all the world and defeated that sin and defeated evil in principle. uh, That the victory has already been won. We are just waiting uh, for all things to be made new and for that victory to be fully realized. Uh, and then Jesus, or, or Peter, talking about Jesus, as soon as he talks about the death of Jesus, he always moves very quickly to the resurrection. And, and we, on Easter Sunday, of course, we were talking about how Jesus was raised to life after death, uh, and in so doing, makes available to us new life and new hope, and that our hope rests in the reality of resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the center to our faith. If you take that away, you've lost everything. And so we, and you should know that Easter is not just a single Sunday in the Christian calendar, but rather it's a a season of seven Sundays. And so we come out of a a season called Lent of six Sundays where we recognize our sinfulness before the Savior. We recognize our need for the Savior. But then we spend seven weeks of celebration of new life in Jesus Christ because in the economy of God, the feast always outlasts the fast. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we, we did that. And then, we, then Peter talked about how he called us to belief. But we talked about how belief, when we come across it in the scriptures, is not how we often think about belief, which is when we think about belief, it's just a purely intellectual exercise. But we realize that belief is more related to our word trust. In other words, our faith isn't just an intellectual exercise, but an exercise of trust in the character of God. And what this ultimately means is, is that... Um, I can have all of my theology point figured out. I can have all of my belief solid. I can be confident in those and yet never really move to trusting God. And to illustrate that, we did a trust fall where we said, I brought Ken up here and I said, Ken is, is strong and he has great uh, response time and I know he's going to catch me and I have all these facts about who he is that would indicate uh, that, that uh, he is capable of catching me. Uh, But that's totally different from me standing and then falling and allowing him to catch me. And so we talked about the the difference between belief and trust. 
But the other side of that is also true that we don't have to have all of our belief or our theology all figured out and tied nicely in a bow in order to really fully trust God. Uh, that we can think that we have all the belief and, the, and all the theology worked out, but never move into trust. But we can also trust God and walk in trusting relationship with God without have, feeling like we have everything figured out. In other words, what, what is implicit to this message that I'm trying to share in this, uh, in this whole series is this, that faith is not equal to the certainty of belief. Faith is not equal to the certainty of belief. Well, then last week we looked at uh, Acts chapter 2, a Pentecost story, where Peter addresses the crowd after the Spirit of God has been poured out among all people. And we learned this. We learned that resurrection life is found on the other side of death. That Christ had to go through death, which, is, which means that resurrection hope is being able to see, is the ability to see the darkness in front of us, embrace the pain in front of us, but maintain hope and certainty that there is new life on the other side. And so new life is found by moving through death, not moving aside or trying to trick death, but rather by moving through death, and whether that death be physical or metaphorical in our lives. And today I want to read, I want to continue the story by reading Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, which is the, uh, which is the end of that section. Uh, And so let's continue the story. You can follow along with me uh, on your smartphones, or it'll be up on the screen as well. Uh, But Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 37 uh, through 41, it says this, Now, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many words he also warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those that accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to gather together in your name. Recognizing God that... Our time of worship doesn't just give us opportunity to express our our praise and our love and our thanksgiving to you, Uh, but our time of worship and singing songs and listening to a sermon and coming to the table and spending time in prayer, that these are, are formative things in our life. And so I pray, God, that today as we have gathered together, that we would be formed and shaped by the power of your Spirit. Uh, that you would move in us, that you would work in us in such a way that we would leave not only confident uh, of who you are in Christ, but also empowered to go and be ambassadors for your kingdom. God, remind us today and restore to us today the joy of our salvation. Be Be with us in these moments as we open up your word together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Uh, This phrase, cut to the heart, as you no doubt know, means they were deeply moved by this message. Uh, They heard the words with their ears, but they also heard the message with their hearts. 
and there's a difference. And you know the feeling, don't you? Have you ever heard a song on the radio and the words connect with your soul at such a level that you are taken into the song? Uh, Or maybe you have watched a, a movie and been moved to tears by the message. I'll never forget watching the new Ben-Hur. Those of you who love the old Ben-Hur will pick up on some variant details in the story. Uh, But we were watching it in the cheap theater, of course. That's the only way to see movies is for $2 instead of $11.50, right? (laughs) So we were watching it in the cheap theater and, and seeing this story of two brothers, not by blood, but by adoption, whose relationship had fallen apart to the point of, of wanting to literally kill one another. But then by the end of the movie, spoiler alert, they reconcile. Watching that reconciliation on the screen moved me to tears right there in the theater because it came at a time in my life where it felt like a lot of relationships had either fallen apart or were falling apart. And that I had hurt people that I dearly loved through no intention of my own. The message of that film cut me to the heart. And this crowd, the people gathered and listening to Peter's Pentecost message were cut to the heart and felt that they couldn't just hear this message uh, and, and then walk away. Uh, perhaps you've had a time in your life where something uh, spoke to you so deeply, moved you at such a level that you knew you couldn't just hear this and walk away, but they felt as though they had to respond. They had to, to do something. They had to respond to this message. And I, I think it's important for us to realize at this point, as they're being called into a response and saying to Peter and all of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do in light of this? It's important, again, to recognize that this does not mean that they understood everything. In fact, I would say it's quite the opposite. There were, probably a lot, there were probably a lot of things that they didn't understand about what was going on with Jesus from Nazareth. But they were cut to the heart and they responded in faith. And this is why I've been saying that the gospel at, the, at its heart is an invitation Because without having all the answers, or even without knowing all of the questions, this crowd feels as though they can and they must respond to this message. You see, what happens is, if we reduce the gospel to a set of facts that people either adopt or not, then we push them into a corner where they have to have everything figured out before they can respond. But the life of faith is not a life of certainty of facts, but rather the life of faith is a dynamic journey of learning, of trusting, and growing. And I hope that we realize this today. I hope that we know this today. And so the crowd that is cut to the heart asks the question, what shall we do? And Peter answers their question by saying, do you believe in the substitutionary theory of the atonement? And do you affirm the proper definition of sin, that it is a willful transgression transgression against the known law of God? And do you uphold the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead? (laughs) No, he doesn't say that at all. When asked, what shall we do and how shall we respond? Peter does not go through all these points of theology to make sure that they have their thinking right. Peter's response is repent 
and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, repentance is an interesting word. Uh, It's often understood to mean that you are very sorry about something, which is true, uh, but it is certainly more than that. Uh, What repentance is, is repentance is a a churning around and then going in a different direction. Uh, In other words, repentance has a greater emphasis on action and orientation of the heart than on proper belief and the emotional state of feeling sorry. Uh, I want to say that again. Repentance has greater emphasis on action and orientation of the heart than on proper belief and the emotional state of feeling sorry. And this should actually teach us a lot about the nature of the gospel and and hopefully help us to slowly strip away uh, the version of the gospel that you were likely handed if you grew up in the church in the last few decades. If you grew up in the church over the last few decades, uh, you probably were given a version of the gospel uh, that was a bullet list set of facts And then someone asked you, do you believe this? And if so, then you have secured your eternal fate in heaven. In other words, coming to faith has come to look a lot like signing a contract of belief with the secretary of afterlife affairs. (laughs) Uh, But this is not Peter's encouragement to the crowd. Uh, What he does is he calls them to repentance and to baptism in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. And so his encouragement to repent is actually uh, an action-oriented word to stop going in the direction that you were going, turn around, and then start going in a new direction. And so it's a word of orientation of life and heart that then affects my actions. And so Peter is actually not at all yet concerned about making sure that they believe all the right things. In fact, uh, at this point in history, there haven't been any church councils, no church fathers to work out all the theology. They're just trying to, do, to, trying to decide what do we do with this Jesus. And Peter, sharing the message, elicits this response of how then should we respond? What should we do? And Peter ultimately says, reorient your hearts from the way that you were going to the Jesus way. Let's start there. And then let's start to work out some proper belief. Don't misunderstand me. Belief is important and I love theology. But more important and foundational to our practice of faith and our life in Christ is orienting our heart toward the way of Jesus. In fact, this becomes clear when we read on. The scripture says that Peter went on to warn the crowd about this corrupt generation. In other words, he sees people and culture around him going in a particular direction that's going to lead down a certain road that's going to ultimately lead to a particular destination that is not desirable. He says this corrupt generation is going in a direction that you don't want to go. And the call to repentance is to stop going that way, turn around, and start going the Jesus way. In fact, his warning is for them to save themselves from this corrupt generation. In other words, you can tell that Peter really feels that whatever direction the culture is going, followers of Jesus need to be rescued from it. It's as though Peter is saying that there are consequences to this way of living. 
Uh, this corrupt generation, you need, you need to be rescued from that way. You, implicit in his message is that going that way is going to lead you to a de- destination that you don't want. It, it has built into it particular kinds of consequences because it's walking in the ways of sin. And he wants to say, turn your heart and your life from that and orient instead your life and heart toward Jesus. And I would say to you that this is a really great reminder for us as well. Because the way in which we live has consequences built in, both good and bad. If we choose to live in ways where we go contrary to the ways of Jesus, we should be prepared for the consequences of that. And by consequences, I do not mean that God is mad at you and waiting to strike you down with judgment. But rather I mean that built into the way of sin, the life of sin, is is the consequences of that sin. And so you might say, well, what, what is the punishment of sin? The punishment of sin is sin. What is the reward of godliness and righteousness empowered by the Spirit? Well, the reward of holiness and righteousness empowered by the Spirit is righteousness and holiness. You see, built into these sort of two ways of life are its own consequences. If you walk in the ways of righteousness, it's going to lead to a, a, a way of peace. If you, lead, if you walk in the ways of sin, it's going to lead you down a, a road of destruction. And by that, I don't mean circumstances in your life are tied to this, that if you go this way, nothing bad will happen, but rather you will reap the benefits of righteousness in your life as you live righteously before God. And you will reap the sin of sin, and you will reap the consequences of sin in your life as you walk in the ways of sin. Does this make sense? And what, what Peter's encouragement to the crowd, in light of the gospel message that has been shared, is repent and be baptized. To receive the forgiveness of your sins. Peter is calling them into a different direction. In fact, implicit in this passage is this. Repentance is the way to rescue. He he says, save yourselves. He seems to indicate that they need to be rescued from uh, the things going on in this corrupt generation, the way that this is going, and the way that they can save themselves is not through moral effort, it's not through trying to follow all the rules or do all the right things in our own power. The way that they can rescue themselves is through repentance. Turning toward the way of Jesus. Turning toward the heart of Jesus. It is there that you will find life. In other words, if you find yourself going in a direction that isn't good or healthy, and you need to be rescued, the way to rescue is repentance. And so when the people ask, what shall we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized, which is a sign and a seal of your new identity in Christ, and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea about receiving the Holy Spirit is really critical, and it's really key because this is a Pentecost story, right? It's a Pentecost message. 
And so they've just had all these weird things happening where uh, people are, are, are speaking in tongues. Now there's a, a lot of debate about whether this is a gift of language or a gift of hearing. So did the apostles speak in their own language and then everyone heard it in their own language? Or did they uh, begin to speak uh, an a completely alternative language that everyone just understood? And uh, I kind of say, well, who cares? <laughs> it's a miraculous thing, right? And they, they, so they have this, this odd thing with the, the language and then they have this odd thing where tongues of fire start landing on people and it's this really weird thing. But it all means that the Spirit of God has been poured out and is now available to all people. That the presence of God now lives in us, not in just the Messiah or just the temple and tabernacle uh, as it had been in the life of Israel. And so, so he says, repent and be baptized, receive the forgiveness of your sins, but in your turning away from this direction and toward the Jesus way, there is also a gift that will be given and it is the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because guess what? You probably can't do all of this on your own and you don't have a righteousness that is on your own, but rather as the Spirit of God lives in you and as you participate in the life of Christ, then all of a sudden, we are made available to us a power to live righteously. To which him belongs all praise and honor and glory forever and ever. And so, there is in repentance these gifts. These gifts of the forgiveness of sin. And this gift of the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we, we don't really recognize the true power of the forgiveness of sin. Sin so easily entangles us. Sin so easily defines us. And when we forgive, it is, it is God declaring over our lives that you are no longer defined by that sin. You are no longer enslaved by that sin but rather you have been set free in Christ by the Spirit of God. These are incredible gifts that are given to us in repentance. We must remember, though, that in these moments, as the church is literally just beginning, and they don't even have language yet to call themselves the church, and in fact, in Acts chapter 2, they haven't yet been given uh, what was originally intended to be a diminutive term, a diminutive title, Christians. They haven't yet been given that term. Did you know this? The term Christian is Christian. And if you look at the, the etymology of that word, it means little Christs. And it was originally intended to be a diminutive term to those who were following in the way of Jesus, where people would look and they would point at them and they would sneer at them and they would say, look at those little Christs. Look at those, those people that are trying to act like Jesus. And so they gave them the term, look at those Christians, those Christians. And man, I wonder, could the church be blamed of the same today? Could the culture look at the church and say, look at those little Christs running around trying to act just like Jesus? <laughs> Lord, may it be true. May it be true that we earn the term Christian. 
May we follow in the ways of Jesus. But we must remember that they didn't have, they hadn't yet been given that term. They hadn't yet been even able to identify themselves as this new community that God is building called the church. They haven't had a chance to work out any uh, theology that you and I would consider just standard issue. As I'd already mentioned, no church councils to answer questions, no established church fathers working out theological details, just a small group of people living in the Jesus way and starting to figure out the full meaning of what had just happened in their midst. But what this, as we look into this text and as we enter this world, the great gift to us in this passage and others is that it gives us the very first glimpse of how the, the earliest Christians were beginning to understand these things and the, the, these pieces of, of what we would just call theology. But particularly what we see in this passage is how the earliest church is beginning to understand salvation and what it means to be saved. Peter makes it clear that they needed to be rescued from the consequences of living in all of the same ways as the, what he calls the corrupt generation. And repentance was the way to that rescue. It was a way of turning away from that way of life into the, following the way of Jesus. And so, in other words, for them, salvation was filled with the theme of rescue. But not just rescue from an eternity in hell. They probably wouldn't have been able to even articulate that. For them, salvation was rescue from the direction of their life that their life was going without Christ. And so salvation was tied very deeply to the theme of rescue, and it was rooted very firmly in the right now. And that's what I want us to help want to help us understand in this third part of telling the story is that salvation for the earliest Christians was grounded firmly in the right now. And then as you lived out your salvation, what scripture sometimes calls working out your salvation, right? And a lot of times, because we read scriptures that say, oh, go and work out your own salvation, and we say, Oh, how am I supposed to do that? I'm saved by grace through faith. We all know that, right? So how am I supposed to work it out on my own? Well, that's the only reason we would understand that is because we've relegated salvation purely as a future reality. But for them, it was deeply rooted in the right now. And so part of working out our own salvation was this sense in which, what are the ways in which this Jesus message and the teachings of Jesus intersect and orient my life right here and right now? How does, how does the Jesus message and the Jesus way become central to my life so that everything is informed by this core commitment to Jesus in his kingdom? And then that affects my family life, my life at work, my, my, political, uh, my political viewpoints and perspectives. Like all of these things have as their core the message of Jesus and his kingdom. That's part of what it means as a working out of your salvation. See, if salvation is only this thing that we've pushed off as only a future reality, then guess what? The idea of working out your own salvation makes absolutely no sense. But if you understand that salvation is firmly rooted in the theme of rescue and in the right now, in the present, then all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense that we are to be pursuing Christ and working out our salvation, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus.
In other words, salvation was a present reality as well as a future hope. And I invite you this morning to begin to see salvation in the very same way. That salvation is both a present reality and a future hope. This isn't in my notes. This is all for free. (laughs) But did you know that in the Apostle Paul's writings, who wrote a big portion of our New Testament, this theme of salvation comes up in all three tenses. So Paul says, you were saved. And he points back to maybe a moment when you decided to follow Jesus. But then he goes on and he says, you are being saved. And he, and he pulls it right into the right now. That salvation is, is something that's happening, both for you and the entire world. That the, the thing that God is up to in the world is making all things right. And that begins at the smallest level of the motivations of our heart to the most cosmic level of all that is going on in the world. But what is God up to? He is about the business of making things right. And so Paul talks about salvation in the past tense, in the present tense. But then he also says that one day we will be saved. And he talks about it in the future. And we might say, well, which is it? <laughs> And we're getting a lot closer to the answer whenever we embrace all three. That salvation is something that happened, is happening, and will happen. And so my invitation to you today is to see salvation as both a present reality and a future hope. And so I want to take just a couple of minutes. And I want to encourage you to consider your life. Are there ways in which you are living, are there ways that you are living that are more in line with this corrupt generation than in the ways of Jesus and his kingdom? Perhaps it's in business or at work. Perhaps it's a habit, maybe an attitude. Or could it be how you treat others or talk about others? Ask yourself the question, are you prone to drawing very clear lines of us and them? And then considering them less valuable than you. Maybe it's dishonesty or greed. Or the list could go on and on. But consider your life. Are there ways in which you are living that are more in line with this corrupt generation than in line with the way of Jesus? I first of all pray that the the story and the message of the gospel would cut you to the heart. But then I invite you to respond in the same way that Peter invited the crowd to respond, which is repent. Be baptized as a sign and as a seal of your new identity in Christ Jesus. And what you will receive is not only the forgiveness of your sin, but you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, chances are you have probably made a confession of faith. I know that isn't true for everyone, but it's, I think, true for most this morning. A lot of times we we tend to think, oh, I've I've already done all that. (laughs) That's over and done with. But my invitation is, is really to examine our lives 
and say, there, there may be parts of our lives where we do need to repent. We do need to receive forgiveness. And we do need to reorient our heart to the ways of Jesus as we work out our salvation together and as Christ continues to work in us. Amen. In fact, that is my invitation to you during our time around the table. To come to the table asking the Lord to search your heart. And as you receive the elements today, to receive the very life of Christ and his righteousness. Not under any illusions that we can go out and under sheer moral effort of our own uh, live righteously, but rather we can live fully dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and empower us together.